Episode number 71, Jeff Dance, the Burly Baker. This podcast is brought to you by Green Endeavour. Who's Green Endeavour? Green Endeavour is the company that houses the brands Suncoast Fresh and Fruit Link. And their aim is to create sustainable communities where people are educated, empowered and inspired through the joy of real food. Also brought to you by Chef Notepad. You have to get this little thing if you have a restaurant or a kitchen to run. The recipe calculator for every kitchen. Check that out. So let's get into this with Jeff. Jeff Dance, welcome to the podcast. Broadcast. Who are you? Where do you come from? And how did you get all your knowledge about grain? Grain. Who am I? I grew up in the country in Victoria. I went to Agricultural College in Horsham, which at the time was the centre of the Australian hard wheat industry, really. Um, exactly halfway between Melbourne and Adelaide. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, I went to University of New England and did Agricultural Economics. Armadale? In Armadale, which was just a great place. Um, I got recruited off campus to join a con- con- computer consulting company, which I did for four years. I worked for two years in Australia and two years in London. I hated it because it, I was good at it, but I hated it, mainly because they made me do time reporting, you know, yeah. like every half hour or something. I got recruited from there to a company called Colgate Palmolive. I ended up being commercial director for Far East. I Got headhunted to go work for them in New York for 10 years running global strategy. I got worried that my kids were becoming very American, so they were 12 and 13. I brought them back to Australia. My mum was not well and I didn't know what to do. And a mate I went to university with had a grain training company. We went and set up a new grain training company, got bought by the Australian Barley Board about 10 years later, something like that. And then I retired onto my farm to enjoy life. Um, I planted too much lawn. I had maybe 10 acres of lawn, which meant that Saturdays I spent mowing. Uh, My wife said, I'm out of here. And we moved up to the Gold Coast. So you went with her. She left you, but you went with her. Well, I dragged her to like 15 different places in the world, I think. What were you doing doing that? Testing bread. Being in love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, with Colgate Pomolo. Ah, yes. So it was her turn to express what she needed. Okay. Um, by the way, our two kids both end up in America. One is now a citizen of America, and all our grandkids are in America. And like, and, and I'm batching at the moment because mum's over looking after the grandkids. Right. Yeah. Uh, but that's what happens, I guess. I um, started making bread on the farm. Um, why do I make bread? Everyone asks me the question, I can't really tell you. Mainly because the people I work with are young. They keep me active intellectually and mentally. And that's sort of, I've never really had so much fun in my whole life. No one can tell me what not to do, pretty much. Beautiful. Yeah. So you had all that experience, all that grain, what about the WA grain stuff? What was that? Well, the Australian government under national competition policy was deregulating agriculture and they wanted to deregulate Western Australia with well, each state had its own barley trading board. They wanted to deregulate that and privatise it. So I was sent to Western Australia to do that. Uh, we formed a cooperative instead of a company with CBH, the grain. I'd say now CBH and Grain Pool is the largest grain trader in Australia by a long way. Wow. Yeah. And very successful and owned by the growers, 100% owned by the growers, which is 
So I've worked out you're pretty smart. Yeah. All right? So you retired <laughs> onto a farm, come back to the city with the missus, and now your kids live overseas, and then you thought, well, I'm just, just over 60. I might just start uh, a really busy bakery and almost test lab, and that's where we are today. So we're just inland from Burley, really. You've got the actual sales bakery down there uh, near Labart and in that sort of area. Yeah. And that's where I went today, accidentally. And um, But the real story and the real fun and the test lab and all these wonderful people are here. Tell us why and how you select the grain and the flour. And then tell me that first, then I'll ask you another question. Well, when we opened Burley Baker, Coles and Woolies had come out with dollar milk, dollar bread. It had wiped out most of the bakers on the Gold Coast, for example, most of the dairy industry in Queensland as well. So we, I decided to try and make historically old-style bread, sourdough bread, pretty much like you can get in France any day. Um, and there wasn't many people in Australia who knew anything about that. So I sort of went overseas, worked in a couple of the French bakers, one in America, famous one called Tartine, um, sort of figured out how to make sourdough bread was the start of it. and. I found this old German baker on the Gold Coast who had a bit of space. He rented me some space, actually gave it to me. I started making bread. It took me about nine months to come up with anything that was reasonable. Out of nowhere, son of a bun, who's a, a wholesale distributor on the Gold Coast, appeared and said, I'm here, you've got some bread. And he took everything I made. Mm. Like he's, he basically created Billy Baker because that sort of six months, he took everything I could make. Ollie, a chef inside, is one of our first see, customers. See how I asked him the question about how do you select the grain and we're just going off of this. Yeah, yeah, I'll come back to that. <laughs> okay. Ollie, the chef inside, is one of our first customers. He was with a restaurant called um, Elephant Rock who got closed down over COVID and he's now joined us. So some of the people who are involved in setting up Burley Baker are still inheriting it. Awesome. Um, how do you make modern bread is you take flour mix it with water, stick it through, put lactose in it, of all things, stick very modern yeast in it, which has probably been genetically modified, and three hours later you put it through a baking machine at, at really low temperatures to save electricity and you've got flour standing on end and they call it bread. And I sort of call it poison, pretty much. Um, it's probably, I mean, wheat is inheriting lots of products in Australia, but by the time you're 20, you've eaten a lot of wheat. And if you're eating a lot of unfermented flour, um, then you're probably not doing your guts much good. So we design, everything we do is engineered around trying to get guts back to where they should be. Um, everything that goes in the mouth ends up in the gut. So you need a gut that's capable of handling whatever goes in there and it's got to be looked after. So we try and pre-ferment almost everything beforehand to try and increase digestibility and decrease the sort of things like lectins or plant protection mechanisms that are inherent in it and increase flavour. So that's sort of what we do. We do it with everything. So we ferment nuts, we ferment the pickles on the cabbage, we ferment Wait a minute, what about we're getting the flour? to that. Go back to the bloody flour. <laughs> the flour. In my grain trading days, I used to do a lot of work out at Walgett yep. with a group called Walgett Special One Co-op, and they were special, I'll tell you, and, and infamous. I think they kidnapped the Premier of New South Wales at one stage. Um, 
those guys did some really remarkable things. One of the growers, a guy called Ben Smith, um, is who we buy our flower off. We actually buy the weed off. And we buy a very old variety called um, Sunco. Um, and we do that because we think that the older, more historical varieties are more gluten tolerant on your gut. The more the more modern ones, which got into a bit of funny crossbreeding and things, have probably increased gluten intolerance. I so think. they potentially crossbred them for better yields and things like that. Then it went yeah, wrong. Correct. Well, yes, and now they're reversing some of that right, breeding. Okay. So today's weeds are probably not not as bad as they were twenty years ago. Uh, but it takes a long time to mm. to reverse those sort of trends. So we use this old variety from a guy called Ben Smith in Trangy. Is that like a name you made up, Ben Smith? Think yeah, about it's that. amazing. Is isn't this it? like so no one can find the elusive yeah, grain grower yeah, yeah. to supply Burley Baker? Well, we buy it through whole grain milling, which you're Don't in Gunnar. Cut the secret. Sorry, cut the secret out. We can't tell everyone where you get the good bloody bread for the flour. From. The flour from well, he doesn't really know where his wheat goes. Right, I don't okay. think. I've been. <laughs> We've been to his farm. It goes to whole grain milling, and they do. When we go down and see whole grain milling, they say, This is Ben Smith's flour. And I said, Okay, we store it all over there, stick a label on it, and that's what we and we bought up two years' supply, basically. It's right. terrific. How long does it last, flour? Well, we I keep, keep it, it in, in my pantry for four to six years, but I'm not sure yeah, if it's Yeah, we, we, it's not stored as flour, actually, it's stored as grain right, in, in okay. aerated silos. And then as we need it, they pull it off because they, they kept the wheat like wheat in aerated silos for us. Okay. And they mill it. So you've selected the good wheat from the good varieties and the old varieties. What about the milling process quickly? Well, <clears throat> like most industrial processes, it's aimed at, at low cost and short time. Um, whole stone ground, whole milling, whole grain milling use stone ground flour, which is basically old stone grinding mm. up, and it's whole grain as opposed to just the endosperm, the, the starch. Mm. So most of our breads are made from stone ground, whole grain flours, and whole grain milling in Gunnedah, that's their specialty. They, yeah, right. Yeah, and most of the artisan bakers in Australia, sourdough bakers, would buy it from them or from Kyala in Toowoomba, right. one or the other. We buy a bit from both. And the nutrient value of their flowers are substantially different from white flour. Beautiful. So then that gets delivered here and we're in the industrial estate almost. And it's got like shipping containers and cool rooms and solar on the roof. It's fairly high tech, very high tech. All the temperatures are of every room where you store the flour, where you prove the bread. Um, all technologically advanced you can operate it from um your bedroom by the sounds of things you said before which is weird and um you have a special starter so tell me about the starter and then tell me about this awesome crew that you have that work here i'm gonna give you three questions because you're gonna answer three anyway and um and how that process comes together and then we'll talk about the importance of that process coming together well, maybe we start with the crew. Okay, you do that. That's fine. When, when, <laughs> well, that was one of the questions. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, I think there's three Australians and four Brazilian, two, three Japanese. They're, they're, they're all that would sponsor them, <laughs> and five French bakers amongst other people. Um, the reason is that most of those cultures have bread at their centre and their heart, um, and and they and they also use techniques that are you know, centuries old. Uh, if you've come up through the Australian bread industry, it's yeasted bread, white mm. flour, and you haven't got a clue about what we're trying to do, basically. 
but we end up with in 20 people on this side of 40 people in the company i would say 12 would be australian the rest are from somewhere else so we're really a global company global it's beautiful citizen. it really is and you can feel the energy and the culture in there that it's almost like you are going overseas you walk in there and you feel like you're in a completely different place so you've done a really good job with the culture and we've sponsored five bakers and sponsoring a baker is not that easy actually um but that's been the key to it to tell you the truth uh we're a nutrition based company as well so we put nutrition at the forefront we have uh bakers who are studying nutrition at endeavor for example three uh we run three farmers markets and run by the general manager the chef and uh, our naturopath and they the reason is to get our staff in front of mums with kids prams to talk about our products on a one-on-one -on -one. it's a bit more difficult on a retail shop mm. so the farmers markets we we run five i think in total which ones um the corumban community market palm beach high school hotter a burley heads high um uh, burley uh, state school we sort of started it up during COVID so that people could still get bread because the retail shops were being shut and so mm. on. Uh, and that that's really worked well, I think, for us. So like, it's a tough gig running those things, because especially when it's raining. So that's where you can get the bread. Tell us about that starter that you stole from France. Uh, in 1974, my wife and I <laughs> bummed around Europe in a combi van. Oh, beautiful. Which we bought outside Australia Square, Australia House, nice. for 300 pounds. Uh, and on that tour, she took me to a, pound, a bakery called Poilane in in um, Paris. Poilane, just the, the son, the grandson had just taken over, and he was building a business. He, he was the last guy with his thumb in the dike trying to hold back traditional old style bread making. Um, I think today he's probably the largest bread maker in well, Poilane is. He died in a helicopter crash, actually, and his daughter, who just graduated from Harvard, went back to run the business. And anyway, I got taken there. I thought, wow, this is really the sort of bread that I'd love to make. And I've been back like four or five times. And we have a big two, two kilo mish loaf that was is sort of pays homage to, to that heritage. I managed to get some dough and put it in a toothpaste tube and brought it back to Australia. Actually, a friend of mine who'd been in Vietnam bought his dope back in a oh, really? in a can of shaving cream. Kids, that's how you want to import stuff. That's, so that's I didn't know when I'd be allowed to bring this starter back. I, that was like not two thousand mm. twenty five years ago, anyway. And I bought it back and bred it back up, and I've had it ever since. The chance of it still being the original um, starter is maybe because I've been feeding with Australian flour ever since, but. But that's the history. I've just got its own little room. Yes. It never leaves the room. It's got its little process that we, and I have backups of it in my fridge at home and stuff like that. Oh, that's good. You have backups. It, one's called, our starter's made of two organisms. One is yeast, that's Napoleon, and one is lactobacillus, that's Josephine, his long-serving female wife, friend. And they generate all the bugs that we use in our factory for everything, from croissants to quiche dough, to um, bread, to everything, pretty much. <clears throat> Tell us about the fermenting process, because you've got the starter, but a lot of people probably know the process, or, or they just do it, but they don't understand the importance of it, or why. Um, 
fermentation is a big word, meaning a big topic. Uh, um, you know, we ferment coffee, the coffee, coffee beans to get coffee, chocolate beans to get chocolate, kimchi to get grapes to get wine, mm. milk to get yogurt, but not many people really understand fermentation in its broader sense. Um, sourdough fermentation uses two bugs, yeast and lactobacillus, which is pretty much the same bug that you use to, in milk to produce cheese and yogurt. Yeah? So lactobacillus is a bigger word than ferment. So It, it oh. is, lactobacillus. So fermenting can be done by all sorts of bugs. The two bugs that we use for bread is yeast and lactobacillus. Lactic acid bacteria. Right. And the reason it's no, it, it produces more bugs, it di pre digests a lot of the gluten and the carbohydrates to make the flour more digestible, and it produces lactic acid, which is a nat natural preservative. That's the sort of sour flavor. Whereas yeast produces, takes the sugars and ferments them and produces alcohol and CO2. The CO2 is what, when you, when you apply the gas to heat in an oven, the CO2 expands. That's what raises the bread. What keeps it up is the gluten. It's sort of like the RSJ, the steel structure. The heat bakes the gluten and it keeps it standing up so that it blows up like a balloon and then gets sort of baked to like So they steel. almost do the steel last. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. sort of the gas comes, gluten forms this little sort of structure, keeps the gas in and then the heat comes in and blasts it. Wow. That's it. Lactobacillus, though, it doesn't produce CO2, so you need the two together. Yeah, and that's called a symbiotic relationship. And we, to get real, that to optimize the, the pre-digestion of the grain to make it softer on your gut, what we do is we extend the fermentation period. Normally, it would be like 12 to 16 hours. We do it for 36. The way we do that is we neutralize the yeast by lowering the temperature because yeast likes somewhere between 14 and 32 degrees C. So if you drop it below 14, between 5 and 14, the lactobacillus still has its day in life, but the yeast is pretty much inactive. And then when you need some gas to blow up the bread, you just raise the temperature slowly, and then when it's ready, you stick it in the oven. So we do this long, cool fermentation at about 14 degrees C um, to to break down all the complex carbs into a more simple, digestible form, to break down the protein and to generally make the bread more digestible. That's sort of what we call lacto-fermentation. We apply that same technology to our, to our croissants, to our cakes, to pastry, to everything. And also the nuts that go in the croissants? Well... Is that a different story again? The way we run the business is with a thing that we call a gut health policy, right? Right. So what we try and do is not put anything in our products that puts the gut at risk. Yeah? So we get rid of all emulsifiers, food additives, colorings, artificial flavors, no genetically modified anything. Um, we test all the grains for glyphosate free. That's why we use either organic or sustainable. Probably the biggest risk that's being run to most people's guts are, is glyphosate um, contamination. Um, we only use grain, grass-fed butter. We only use grass-fed meat. We don't use grain-fed because we think that that's a more nutritious way. The, the sort of fat combinations that we end up with are better. And when you and we don't use any chemicals or artificial colours or flavours. 
which is a tough gig actually, because every bag of flour we open is unique. And the way modern bakers get around those, they add bread improvers and other things, and they mix the flour all up like crazy. So it's sort of got a really narrow standard deviation variation. Every bag of flour we open is totally unique. And that's why we need really, really good bakers not just bakers but smart people because every time we do a mixture it's totally different and they have to be there's no recipe stick a button and go away it's like they've got it that's why we call ourselves artisan sourdough bakers and it's the artisan side so we make bread like they did 200 years ago using some technology that's modern but it's more like heat temperature and humidity control and not about the actual process of making the bread so guts an ugly word so why don't we call it the big Burly health, no big burly, as in belly, no joking. Okay, so you got this cool crew. Is it hard to expand, like to increase production if it's really sort of look? A we're bit growing at twenty to thirty percent a year. Okay, we, so no. Yeah, I, the problem is we've got a foot in the brake and we're pulling that. It tastes really good, but the most frequently asked question in the shop is how come your bread tastes so good? But the second one is the key, and that is how come I can eat your bread? And I can categorically yeah, say that's what I want to get to, yeah. That, you know, from talking to our customers over seven years now, farmers markets and, and so on, and it's usually mums with kids with prams, you know, they're the ones that are under most risk. How come I can eat your bread? Because everyone's walking around with bloated guts. And, you know, you can eat this bread. I can, I'm, I know, and... It depends whether you're celiac or not. Have you got Scottish or Irish genes? I'm on the way. So basically I have two mutated celiac yeah. genes. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't go near it. Okay. I, yeah, I think wheat's a really dangerous protein for people with damaged guts. Yeah. Um, and I know guts is not a great word, but I, we, our say, favourite saying is love your guts, you know. No, oh, look, it is. I was joking before. Oh, yeah, no, guts is a great word. And, and no, it is. Got it one like got. I think the, the 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 term that we're using it for is internal. When yeah. we say guts, we're thinking internal. When, yeah. when we say belly or burly, it's it's from the outside. The burly, you belly. know, the big burly. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's a great word. So you have a couple of mutated like it's going on there. So you're going to stay away from gluten, really? Is that? Is if you got is Irish that, or Scottish, Celtic genes in you? Well, definitely English. So we're yeah. from yeah. we're from there. So we would well, do five percent. Sure. They didn't have grains, so the Celts. 5% of Celts are celiacs, and they're pretty well crossbred down through the thing, so Australians are maybe so, so 1% on that, or less. There is loads of sicknesses. There's leaky gut, there's um, celiac, there's Look, all I, these things. Eczema. Eczema, acne, bloating. Yeah, but it's all the same, to tell you the truth. I, I've done, I'm in the middle of trying to write a book on gut health and nutrition. My conclusion is... Um, the large intestine is only one cell thick, and if it gets damaged, then you end up with what's called a leaky gut. The moment that happens, you're at real risk because bacteria can escape and all the other bugs and stuff. Uh, I pretty much think that Alzheimer's linked to the same thing, and it's sort of like an immune system reaction in the brain or the heart, the arteries, to, to deal with the invasion of... So now you've put your immune system under risk, but not under pressure, not just in the short term, but over the long term. Only little bits at a time, but it's a long, long time. So over 20 years with a leaky gut, you're pretty much going to set your immune system off and you'll end up with an autoimmune disease. You know, in other words, your immune system doesn't know who's good and who's not anymore. 
So, you know, eczema is a sign of that. The largest organ is your skin. If you start seeing the skin rashes and stuff, you pretty much know that that's a gut problem, almost without. And so then you've got to re-engineer the gut back to a healthy position, and you can do it. How do you do that? You've got to do it when you're young, because if you don't, Crohn's disease, which is like once you've got this sort of stuff, you're dead, right? Um, you know, if you get it at 40 or 50, it's too sorry, late. Sorry, Mum. You've got to get it early in life, yeah? Um, and, and so what you've got to do is get yourself into something like what I'd call an elimination diet, um, probably meat protein-based, virtually all grains out, all nuts out, most vegetables are out, most fruits out, you've got to get sugar out, you've got to get all dairy out, you've got to get all eggs out. Now, that means you can eat something green, nothing white or orange. Is that for a period of time, not forever? I reckon it's maybe about three months. Oh. Give yourself the chance for your system to settle down, and then once a week you can introduce one new, one new product, a vegetable or fruit or something, and you do nothing but be super sensitive to what's going on, and you can tell instantly. Now, within a day, you know you can eat this or you can't eat that. So no, you've got no. to get yourself in a really low, irritable type state first, and then you can add foods back. And you'll be surprised what happens. We have a baker inside. He's French. He makes his own cheese. He makes his own sausage on at home, right? He's a nut. And he's got eczema. And I said, what do you got eczema from? He said, oh, it's a bloody Australian flour. You know, I said, well, I don't think it's Australian flour. What are you eating? So we put him on. We have a naturopath. We put him on a, an elimination diet took like five weeks to get everything settled down and we and I talked to him in during that time when I'm making bread on the table yeah because yeah. we we only buy French cheese because it's made from raw milk and I said what do you think you're allergic to and he said I don't know and so the first thing he added back is milk bingo out bumps all the eczema mm. he said why would you be allergic to milk it turns out they, in France, they don't have refrigeration at school. They use UHT milk in carts for kids, babies, you know, kindergarten, all the way through. UHT milk is chemicals in a box. It is not milk. Ultra high temperature milk is milk that's been fucked up pretty much. So he's allergic to milk. Is that homogenized or pasteurized as well? It's homogenized, pasteurized, but at very high temperature. And you can leave it in a box it's chemicals. You can leave it in a box in the middle of Darwin and it won't, won't go off. It'll mm. sit there for months, right? It's chemicals in a box. So he's allergic to milk from UHT milk, in my experience. So we went back and got French whole raw milk cheeses and he can eat those. Thank God. Yeah. Mm. And it's probably that he, he got sensitized to the protein in the milk because there's two types of protein in milk, a bit like gluten. And he got sensitized to one of them. If he, if he uses brown cow milk, it's high in A2 protein. Oh, yeah, that's an A2. White yeah. cow milk, which is you know, Holstein, black and white cows, is high in A1. So he's allergic to A1 protein. All right. Because we've since got to verify. So if he goes back to raw milk from brown cows, you know, he's pretty well okay. And he was blown away that he was allergic to milk, right? And now he eats virtually anything. Yeah. Um, but he can't drink milk in coffee or tea or anything like that. So, so is there a difference with the cream, but or is that because well, the protein in that milk bit, or is it in the cream? Yeah, there will be protein in the cream, but less. Yeah. And and because um, the protein, you know, when you make cheese, you use whole milk, and the 
the protein ends up in the cheese, but if it's made from the right milk, it'll be okay. Cream's basically got the lactose out of it, which I think is any Asians in Australia are probably lactose intolerant. Mm. It's sort of like the Celts being gluten intolerant. It's the same mm. sort of thing because they didn't have dairy cows to to so they don't have the enzyme to digest lactose. Mm. Pretty much. So I, I think if you have a view of health and well-being, the older you get, the more too late it is. <laughs> you know, it's no good trying to start at my age with a, with a nutritional problem. You've yeah. got to go backwards. Um, and that's why mums with prams are the most critical customers we have, because they're the ones that are under most threat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way economics work today, I think it's three or four times more expensive to eat real whole food. Is fruit real whole food? Yes. Vegetables real whole food? Yes. A canned tomatoes real whole food? Well, maybe not. Canned tomatoes from Italy come from China. Hmm. Um, you know, I, real whole food is real whole food that hasn't been processed, in my view. And the more of that you eat, the less at risk you are. Does that go back to fertilizers as well? Like well, well soil that's. Or? goes back to farmers yeah, yeah and and processes um, we only use sustainable um, flour or organic flour because I'm really nervous about the effect of glyphosate on uh, on on crops and which is probably the most highly used that's roundup yeah roundup yeah roundup originally was effectively a, a an antibiotic and the problem with roundup is that it doesn't affect the human so much, but it affects the mitochondria. Mm. I, I think you'll find a lot of uh, the I'm feeling dead disease type stuff, uh, autoimmune stuff is coming from, you know, coming from chemical overload. Mm. You know, when the largest crops in America, the three, two biggest crops, are soy, the three are cotton, soy, and corn. Cotton's genetically modified to be Roundup ready. So you can spray it with Roundup and the cotton won't die, but everything else will. The soy is Roundup ready, genetically modified Roundup. You can spray it with Roundup and it'll survive, but nothing else will. Corn is Roundup ready, same thing. High fructose corn syrup is the most frequently used sugar in America. It's in everything, right? Um, I would say cottonseed oil coming out of genetically modified cotton is the major ingredient in fried chips. Hmm. Every McDonald's oil is made out of cottonseed oil and cottonseed oil, you know, oils are residual places where chemicals collect actually, you know, and the seeds are sort of thing that getting sprayed. And soy is in everything. So if we use soy here, we use Australian grown organic soy, which is not genetically modified. How, how you can survive in America without eating GMOs, I don't know. The, whether the GMO side of it is an issue, I'm not sure. But what I do know is that if it's GMO, then it's Roundup ready, then it's had its dose of Roundup in its mm. life. And so you're increasing the risk of that herbicide. I remember seeing that picture on some Instagram or something where the guys who looked like they were in space suits and they were spraying the, the vegetables like, oh, is this a picture of Mars? No, 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 this is uh, someone spraying the vegetables that we eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would be the roundup they would have been spraying. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. What other health stuff can you tell us? 
because I like your health thing, because that's how I got introduced to you through a good mate of mine, old Anthony Look, Joseph. At, at 50, He's, I was a shot duck. Person. Shot duck. A shot duck. I was, I'd been fired through bullet holes. I'd, yep. I'd work myself silly. Yeah, Not I was on blood either. pressure pills. Um, I remember I came home from a trip. I was really working hard. I came home from a trip and I said to my son, breakfast, you know, you can't do that. And he said, you can't say that to me, Dad. Mum's the boss around here. You're never here. And I think, you know, you can pretend as a young person that stress doesn't get to you. Yeah. But the reality is stress is a, is a one issue. Living on planes was another. Eating fast food was another. Enjoying red wine was another. By 50, I was on blood pressure pills. I'm 74. I think I work as hard as anyone in here. That's not what they said to say. 10 years ago, I sort of tried to regenerate myself, mainly starting with my gut. I did the elimination diet. I got off all the things that affected me. I can't drink beer because I'm allergic to barley. I I think I know why, but it's got to do with a bottle of scotch, but I'm... I'm allergic to barley, I'm allergic to um, compound fed chicken. So most chicken that's in a pen and fed, no, yeah, whether it's a chicken or what it's fed, is so I can only eat organic free range type chicken. When I say allergic, it's like I, I know. I'm allergic to wheat. Um, I can eat our bread, but if I eat white yeasted bread, it's like mm. I, I blow up like a candle. So. Um, and it's not gluten intolerance, it's that's gut related stuff. Mm. I don't eat anything in a packet. I build everything we build in our shops and our inside everything from scratch. We do everything from scratch, including peeling bloody pumpkins and stuff for pumpkin bread. Um, which is a big commitment, you know, like it's it's about four times more expensive for a mother to to read eat real whole food than eat packet food. Convenience food. Yeah, well, she Slash. gains it, loses time, yeah. yeah, which is, and and the cost of preparation and, and wastage and stuff, you know, like it's, it's three to four times more expensive. That's a tough gig for a young family, mm. you know? And so we're dooming, if we're not careful, we're dooming the proletariat to huge health, health and well-being problems. Um, well, I don't mind paying for avocado and toast if it's on this type of bread. Exactly. No, know. no, but that's that's it. And, you know, hot, let me just talk about fruit juice, right? You know, we talked about the gut before. The major part of the gut's the large intestine. It's one cell thick. Between it and the, the inside of the gut is a mucus lining, which is quarter of an inch thick, yeah? That's where most of the microbiome is. I work for a detergent company. It's anything to do that um, sopon- that emulsifies things, emulsifiers keep stuff together. They decrease surface friction between things. Keep like when you make mayonnaise, yeah. The soy lecithin's an emulsifier. When you, you import frozen fruit juice minus all the fibre, and you reconstitute it in Australia by putting water in it and you stick it in a bottle and feed it to little kids and call it orange juice, basically what you've got is an emulsifier in there to stop it separate. Yeah? Just about every product in a packet that's liquid has got an emulsifier. Emulsifiers like a detergent. So you have two glasses of orange juice in a 
bottle and your young kids shit out their microbiome because it sloughs all the mucus lining off the large intestine. So you've got to get off all the emulsifiers. Yeah, I mean, it's really as simple as that. You just sit there and look at their, their microbiome on the ground. And what do we do with young kids? We feed them orange juice like crazy because we think it's healthy. If you squeeze real oranges and drink orange juice with the fiber intact, there's no emulsifiers in That's it. That's the bit, Scarlett. You, can have, you, don't like you can have orange juice every day. There's, you know, the sugar issue aside. I was also pre-diabetic, so I had to get off all sugar. I, I don't take blood pressure pills. My blood sugar reading is like 5.3. Um, my, my brain's back to where I was at 40, something like that, I reckon. Uh, my eyesight, I've never worn glasses, but my eyesight's better than it's ever been. Um, what about thyroid? While we're at the doctor, I've got a bit of a thyroid thing. Well, up. that's a stress issue, probably. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Fuck it, not stressed. Well, Why do you think I'm stressed? It, I, I got a lot of hormones tested, and my cortisol, which is the flight and fight hormone, it actually appears in your system half an hour before you wake up, mm. right? But mine wasn't this high. Mine was triple. You know, I was up and ready to go. It's called fight and flight. So we were talking about this this morning on the way down. <laughs> yeah, this, my uh, cortisol, I, my cortisol levels now down to where normal, and I could, I did that mainly through yoga type breathing, believe it or not, and improving my sleep. This ring is not my wedding ring. This is a, a it's got little gadgets in it, so it monitors my sleep, so I can tell you what my pulse rate is, how long I slept, really? what sort of sleep. Yeah, it needs a bloody app watch. Huh? That's cool. Yeah, it's, yeah, it does like an Apple Watch does it too. So I think learning how to sleep better, being committed to, you know, I bum around 6 or 10K every day somewhere, you mm, know. Being not today because we were two hours late, but yeah. No, I did it at 6 <laughs> o'clock before <laughs> okay. you got here. Um, I think that and the swim sort of got my physical side going better and I only eat food that I've made from scratch ourselves pretty mm. much, just like our own business. My blood pressure dropped, my cortisol dropped, my my insulin dropped. I I was went from pre-diabetic to non-pre-diabetic, and it took me like four years, I suppose. Um, Fifty percent of America has diabetes, and they also don't live as long as their parents. You said yesterday. Uh, the the life expectancy. The country with the highest life expectancy is Japan. It's eighty three. Is it back? Yeah. He's a young engineer that's working with us. That was a little sidetrack there. Yeah, I sorry about Tell that. me about the You'll have to Japanese. No, that's okay. Japanese life experience 83.2, mm. I think. Australia's 82.1. We're Ooh. number two or three. Um, America spends 7% of its total economy on food and 21% on health. Japan spends 11% on food, 40% more. and 12% on health, half, and, and the highest life expectancy. Where so they similar. eat better food and they don't have to go to the doctor as much. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Right. So if you Correct. spend more money on food, you don't have to spend it on health. You end up like me, right? Yeah. Scarlett's writing a question down for me. Just say it. Food and mood. Oh, oh really? <laughs> you want to go there? Yeah, well, I read a study recently um, and it was probably... I think it's one of the first studies that have, have really made some proper connections with food and mood. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to know your take on it. 
So mm. just to put that so you can hear, Food and Mood, Scarlet read some studies and would like um, Jeff's thoughts. Look, I had a, a really interesting son and he's now got a more interesting son, thank God. It's a bit of payback. If he got any, if he went to a first year baby's, you know, Christmas, birthday party and got into any red or orange food diet, he became like a maniac. Yeah, and that was the first sign I saw between the relationship between behaviour and what you ate. I mean, you, you can see it as you grow up with alcohol. <laughs> so we would take alcohol and drugs and put it aside food. I think 60%, 50% of females under 30 uh, have got bloating or some digestion problem with their gut. And I think they're fertility and reproduction systems are under threat as well. So there's some major uh, issues around yeah? Um And then these are delicate topics in a way. If you're permanently walking around in that state, you know, for 10 years of the most important part of your life, you, you it weakens you emotionally, I think. You know, like you're not standing on concrete now, you're going, well, shit, will my health survive? Or will, will this rash break out on my face? Or, you know, those sorts of things. So, you know, like sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you're pulling the foundations out from under you and you're weakening yourself. The consequence of that is you'll get mood swings from depression to exceptional high, I suspect, you know, depending on where, you, we're all different, yeah, but you'll get depressed and go the other way just to get some balance. There's, to me, there's absolutely no doubt that what you stick in your gut is going to affect you. And it's going to affect you psychologically. It's going to affect your your well-being, health and well-being. And it's day by day. The slopes of the curves are not very, you know, it takes a long time to, to pick up the symptoms. So you just have to be in, in touch with yourself. Every time you stick something in, you've got to figure out whether it's good or not. And after a while, you get really smart about what you eat. And it's pretty much as simple as that. It's going to cost you more money. You're going to have to buy more of the products that you guys grow. Yeah. yeah? from more sustainable growers, um, more whole foods, you know, stop peeling apples or stuff. Yeah. Yeah, don't eat apple juice or orange juice, eat the bloody orange. There's a group um, whose name I can't remember at the moment, uh, who've done re remission of diabetes exactly the same way, just by diet. You know, like this stuff like the keto diet, low carb and all that other stuff. But I, I suspect the real issue is the younger you are, the more whole, real food you eat, the less packet food you eat, the better off you'll be. Yeah. And, you know, I was I was a shot duck, as I said, and I, I was able to maybe over a six or eight year period reverse most of that. You know, the demands that I make on the health system and, and the support systems and my family is zero. And Whereas I reckon 10 years ago, I was headed to probably being dead at 65 or something like that. Yeah, without too much trouble. Yeah. Wow. Well, this is um, a super interesting topic, and um, so eat good bread unless you've got uh, gluten intolerance. Yes, um, I do or want to, a leaky gut. Or a leaky gut, but I just want to touch on one more thing, even though yeah. it's a bit of a longish podcast for us, but it's super interesting. So what I want to talk about is you've got like this test lab here. It's almost like, um, you know, Noma's place, you know. It's, it's actually got this beautiful courtyard. We're sitting at these cool little tables, but in behind us, you just gave us a taste of all these amazing things. Can you tell our beautiful listeners a little bit about what we got to experience firsthand an hour ago? We've worked with a... There's a little bit of a truck being unloaded as well, just yeah, to well, set the scene. Yeah, that's called the flower. Hold one. Yeah. There's the flower. We, 
We, um, I met up with some research and development experts in Brisbane, two really wonderful people. One had been a cancer researcher and the other one was a... That's a forklift. <laughs> the other one was a, a, a legal, a tax barrister, actually. And there's a, a scheme in Australia called um, a research and development, tax-based research and development scheme. So we did some of that work. That's how we funded all this technology. Um, we won a capital asset growth uh, development plan and, and we've applied all the sourdough technology to nuts, believe it or not. Right. Because I think nuts are going to be a, a better source of nutrients than artificial meat, you know, um, for example. Yes. Um, and so I, it was one way of me keeping my mind active and working on new things. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we're doing. We're basically, and we're using only Australian-based nuts. I mean, the, if you think of the structure of the nut like I do, which is what components are carbohydrate, what's fat and what's protein, mm. um, and then the makeup of those relative bits, then macadamias represent nutritionally some real major opportunities um and so we're concentrating on australian grown nuts so that's almonds macadamias and peanuts by the way right so which is the better one uh, would it be macadamias well it depends if you want the best fat you can possibly get macadamia because mm. they're like 72 percent fat but nutritionally uh, for better protein and carbohydrate balance is probably the, the almond. Yeah. The cashew nut's perfect, but it's important. So we tend to stay away from it. Okay. Um, so you're making all sorts of wonderful products there. And tell me, just touch on what are you doing with um, the Urban Valley, uh, Joel and Rachel's mushrooms? Well, we're, we got introduced to them by you, yes. as I recall, and we went up to meet them. And interestingly, this technology that we use to ferment our breads, they're basically using to grow mushrooms. Yes. Um, almost identical. They don't worry so much about cooling, uh, but they worry about temperature, humidity, and, yeah. and time. Well, CO2 as well. Yes. And so, you know, I'm like, wow, they, I could ferment bread in these rooms, you know, they're growing mushrooms um, in the middle of Brisbane. Yeah. And we were interested in making a fermented product out of mushrooms called a garum, which is like Worcestershire sauce, but oyster sauce, mate. And so we got in contact with them and we used some of their less saleable products, you know, the ones that don't look quite so beautiful. We grind them up and ferment them. And we've got a mushroom sauce now that we think is pretty good. Um, is that the one we tasted? Yes. Delicious. Yeah. We've got a pizza place in Brisbane using someone that's mushroom pizza yep. with some success, I think. Awesome. We'll have to go there. Yeah. I could talk to you for all day on this particular place, but we might have to round up today's and leave it as one given the forklifts here as well. Yeah. Uh, but thank you so much for uh, interrupting your day and um, getting to know you. Um, everyone's going to get a lot out of this. So thank you for being a part of our podcast. Well, I, it's not interrupting my day. <laughs> it's, I think that what you do, the communication gap that you're filling between growers and consumers is really, really important. 
not everyone can get to a market and sort of see the things that you see. And so to be able to see that in a social media sense and where you're talking directly with the growers and the users of the product, I think is fantastic. And the more people know about that, the better. Well, thank you, and um, and yeah, that's a big thanks to uh, the Scarlet and all the team that yes. and Neve and everyone that helps put it together. We um, we're really proud of what we do, and thank you for saying that. It makes us feel awesome. You're a good well, man. But can you dance, Jeff? Dance. I can dance. He can dance. Whoa, thank you, Jeff. I just wanted to find out if he could dance. Turns out he can, so that is awesome. But if you think someone would be interested in that particular podcast, please flick it onto them. That would be awesome because gut health and graying origin is super important. Also, check us out on Instagram, suncoast underscore fresh. Thank you. See you next time.